Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I think you can. Good. Well, it's good to be here. My name is Steve Jager. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm introducing myself because I think this might be the first time this semester that I preached, and maybe even quite a while longer than that. I can't remember for sure, but it's good to be with you this morning. Um, If you don't know me very well, you may not know the fact that I am not what you would call a big sports guy. Um, I enjoy sports a lot, uh, I do, I, especially college football and basketball, I like watching them on TV, but I just don't track with teams or no players or rankings or standings or stats, anything like that. It's just not my thing. However, like most people, I do enjoy a good sports victory story when I hear it. So, you know, things like uh, movies like Rudy and Hoosiers, you know, some of the old classics, Field of Dreams, it's not really a victory story, it's something else, but, um, you know, I love, I love things like that. There, nobody would ever accurately be able to call me a Cubs fan, but when the Cubs won Game 7 of the 2016 World Series in over, extra innings, I'm, I, I cried like many people <laughs> around the world. It was, it was pretty magnificent. So I like victory stories, but it's also sometimes educational uh, to hear some sports failure stories. And there are some pretty colossal failure stories that are out there. Those of you who are big sports guys out there in the congregation today, you could probably already think of a few of them. One of them that I just recently learned about, uh, it's a a football story from the NFL. Going back to 1993, the uh, Houston Oilers played the Buffalo Bills in the AFC wildcard game that year. And in the fourth quarter of that game, going into the fourth quarter, Houston was leading Buffalo by 32 points. It was just a gigantic lead. But through a series of mistakes that Houston made and then some great plays by Buffalo, they came back to tie the game and then win by three points. They made up a 35, I think, point, 32 or 35 point deficit in overtime. It's just, it's nuts that something like that would happen. And then there's the 1986 World Series. Some of you might know this story. The Boston Red Sox were leading the New York Mets uh, three games to two in the seven game World Series. And in game six of the series, the Red Sox were ahead by two runs and just a few plays away from winning the game, winning the whole World Series, taking the title home. But several bad pitches allowed the Mets to come back and tie the game and then even get a few extra runners onto base. And then in a scene that gets replayed and replayed and replayed, you know what I'm talking about here, buddy? Okay, yeah. Uh, over and over again, the Red Sox first baseman lets a ground ball dribble through his legs, and a Mets runner scores, tie, win, wins that game, sends it to Game Seven. The Mets win, and Boston just kind of melts down. Unfortunately, if it's your team that wins, yay! If it's your team that utterly chokes, man, does that stink! Right? I mean, it is horrifying, it is miserable, and it's very memorable. You will not forget that. Now, here's a question. What if, instead of a sports team that we're talking about, the group or the organization or the community that we're discussing having a meltdown is a church? What is at stake if a church chokes? If you're a sports fan, there are stakes to your team's ability to stick with it and, you know, bring the the victory home, to persevere all the way to success for your team. There are emotional stakes to that. There's bragging rights to that. 
Perhaps there are financial stakes to that if you go deep enough with your team. But if you are a follower of Jesus, the stakes are far higher for how a church perseveres in its mission. There are personal, individual stakes for each one of us. We invest in our church and we want to see it thrive. But also, our our own personal spiritual health is very tied to how our church is doing. But it's also not just about us. It's not just my own spiritual health. Christians do not believe that the church exists just for us, or even primarily for us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a person who believes that the church exists for the sake of the world. You believe that as imperfect and broken as it is and can sometimes be, the church is the hope of the world because it is the community that carries God's message of salvation to all the world to hear and believe. And if the church chokes on that mission, the consequences are so much greater than just a championship game. Our spiritual life suffers, and real people miss out on hearing the gospel. Each of us individually and the whole world corporately need the church to persevere and to succeed in its mission. This semester, we're reading the book of 1 Peter together, and we're asking the question, what is the kind of faith that perseveres? What's the sort of life in Jesus that perseveres to the end? And that's very important for each of us individually to ask, but it is just as important for us to ask that question corporately. What is the kind of church that perseveres in its faith and in its mission? Well, we need to answer that question because as we've seen, the stakes are really high for ourselves and for the world. And so today we're going to move into the second chapter of 1 Peter, and I need to get to my page, to 1 Peter chapter 2. And you can go ahead and turn there right now if you've got a Bible. This chunk that we're going to read actually ends the first section of Peter's letter. And it's where he has been reminding his readers of who they really are and what is really true about them, really true about God, and really true about the world. Peter's been reminding them that God the Father has given them new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They are God's children now. No matter what their background might have been, they are God's children, his family. They have an inheritance of faith and hope and love from him that is infinitely valuable. And it's an inheritance that they don't need to wait to die for somebody to die for them to get. It's available to them now. And as a result, they are called to a faith in Jesus that changes the way that they live here and now. When I say they, I mean Peter's readers, but this is for us. As Peter said in last week's passage, we are called to the obedience, I'm sorry, we're called to obedience to the truth. In short, we're called to be a church that perseveres. So let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and see what that looks like. So put away, oh, I'm reading the wrong translation, never mind, I'm going to do it out of here. Therefore, we'll try this. Rid yourselves of all malice and, dece- and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up into sal- in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, 
you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. What does it take for a church to persevere in its faith and its mission? Or maybe ask the question slightly differently. What kind of church perseveres in its faith and in its mission? Peter has already been answering that question in different ways throughout the first two chapters of his letter. But in this passage, or the first chapter of his letter, in this passage right here, he gives us three sets of images that show us three kinds of community that we need to be in order to persevere in our faith and persevere in our mission. So three sets of images that give us three kinds of community that we need to be to persevere. We're going to look at each one of those three in turn today. Let's look first at what we see in verses 1 through 3. There's a very memorable set of images here. Newborn babies craving spiritual milk, growing up into salvation, tasting that the Lord is good. If you hear echoes of previous passages in 1 Peter in there, that's very good. You should. Back in chapter 1, Peter talked about the new birth that we have been given. And now that we are obedient children, because we have... We have had that new birth. That's all in the air of what Peter's saying right now. He's focusing on the nature of our new life in Christ that we've been given. Peter's basic point is really simple enough on the surface of things. Like newborn babies, we should crave what gives us and sustains our life. But that sort of begs the question, what is Peter telling us to crave? What is, what's spiritual milk? It's sort of an important question, right? Because we need to know if we're eating the right thing, if we're taking in, ingesting what we ought to be doing. Now, judging from the discussion that he's just had in chapter 1, he might be talking about the Word of God, probably meaning the Old Testament as the people hear it preached. In, in the verses just before what I read, in 1.23, he writes, You've been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. So that could work. I mean, obviously, God's word is centrally important. It's indispensable to spiritual life. So spiritual milk, whatever it is, at least includes the idea of God's word. It's definitely something we need. But when you read this first chunk of text more and you get down to verse 3, the picture gets a little bit bigger. Peter quotes Psalm 34 when he says, Crave pure spiritual milk if, or since, you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's from Psalm 34. What we need to taste and what we need to keep on developing a taste for isn't just the Bible. It's not just God's word. 
It's God himself. He, it, it's the one that the word points us to that we need to be developing a taste for. Peter is not commanding us to listen to more sermons and do more Bible studies and get all those podcasts and everything. As good as those things are, he's simply pointing us to the source of life within those things. It's, it's the difference between the milk and the carton. If you just have an empty carton, it's not going to do a whole lot for you. It's the milk inside you're going for. You might not guess this to look at me, but when I was, uh, I think, just a week old, I was put back into the hospital for something that they called failure to thrive. Essentially what this meant was that I was not growing. Uh, I, was, I was not getting enough to eat or something. I, I was just not getting any bigger. And I'm not sure if I really cried about that a whole lot. My, my parents didn't tell me a whole lot about the story. But I wasn't gaining weight. What they discovered when they put me back in, in the hospital is that I was a one-week-year-old beast. Uh, sorry, one-week-old beast. I was so hungry that I was not getting enough milk or formula or whatever exactly I was on at that point. And after increasing my intake, that didn't really help anything either. And so the doctors decided to have my parents start mixing in small amounts of baby cereal for a one-week-old. That's not typically what you do. Well, it worked. I started gaining weight, and six feet, four inches later, here we are. My, my milk plus cereal story is not contradicting what Peter's saying about pure spiritual milk. That's not the point I'm making. My point is that Peter is saying that an infant needs, needs one thing to sustain its life. And without it, he or she will fail to thrive. So if you fast forward my story several years and several feet later, I became a Christian here at U of I, and at first, uh, shortly after I met Jesus, um, a friend gave me a Bible that I started reading. It was, it was a small Bible. It was very tiny print. I had reading problems. And then uh, at, less than, at less than a year old of spiritual life, I bought myself my own study Bible, and I, I started reading it. It took me about three years to get all the way through it, but I read my study Bible from cover to cover. It was good. It was good for me. Really, it was indispensable for me. That was how I first met the Lord. It was in his word. But as I kept growing spiritually, I needed to have more in my, in my spiritual life than just reading his word. I needed to encounter God himself more and more. And the way that happened was through a mentor and through friends who kept pointing me back to Jesus. We would go to him together in prayer, worshiping regularly, slowly learning what it looks like and means to pray. I didn't do it perfectly. I, I didn't even do it that well, honestly. But in doing these things, I encountered God himself, not just information about him. Now, because what we crave is God himself, and it's not just information about him, where does Peter point us to satisfy this craving that we've got? So you could ask the question, how is it that we crave? How are we supposed to go about getting this? Well, surprisingly, Peter doesn't point us to practices like reading your Bible or praying a lot or going to church. Well, actually, stick a pin in that. He sort of does that in a second. Instead, he tells us how to crave more of God in verse 1. He says this, Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. If you... To, I, a better translation of that might be ridding yourselves of all these things, crave pure spiritual milk. The command is to crave. 
Peter is pointing us toward being in a Christ-centered community as our means for getting that pure spiritual milk. And specifically, he's telling Jesus' followers to get rid of behaviors that destroy that community. How we crave pure spiritual milk is by exchanging old patterns of life, the life we had before, for patterns of new life that we now have as God's newborn children. Newborns need one thing that gives them life, and they scream for it. They will let you know when they are hungry. But helping them to grow is not only giving them what's good for them, it's not giving them what's bad for them. Even stuff that might be just kind of neutral. Helping infants to grow, for example, you can't give infants dairy milk because dairy milk has proteins in it that are so big that their, their young kidneys can't handle it. They, it just is not healthy for them. You also can't give infants honey because honey can contain bacteria that's harmless to anybody over one year of age, but in infants can actually cause botulism. Here's the point. Infants continue to crave what is good by not taking in what is bad. They develop a taste for milk and milk alone because at that point in their life, that is what they need. Honestly, the same thing could be true for adults in a way. The less soda I drink, the more I find myself craving water. It actually makes a difference. The less coffee I drink, I just become cranky. So <laughs> it doesn't quite work as well. But you get what I mean. In short, a church that perseveres is one that craves what is indispensable to its life. It craves God. So here's, maybe there's a memorable quote to help you apply this in your life. If, to this, this idea of being a craving community, what could you do with it? Here's what I'd say. Stay hungry. To be a craving community, stay hungry. I've heard that line from athletes over the years as they talk about how they approach their sport. They say, I need to stay hungry. I, I don't want to get complacent in, what, in my training and what I'm doing out there. In particular, friends, don't get complacent about Christ-centered community in a church. You can't take it for granted. Students, you in particular, as you're spending your undergraduate years here, you are often invited into community that's kind of ready-made and prepared for you. I'm so glad that you're here at TCBC to see what a church in the real world could look like. When you graduate and you go on to a new place, it can be very daunting. It's very different when community isn't prefabricated for you. It takes intentionality to see in yourself and to turn over to God all those community-killing things that Peter told us to get rid of. The, the malice, the, the deceit, the hypocrisy, envy, slander. We need to be aware of where those might be growing up in us so that we can nip it in the bud as soon as we can and get rid of it. But the more that we keep that good kind of community at the front of our minds, the more that we're going to crave it and the more that we're going to experience it and the more that we will want nothing other than God himself. All right. Peter's first set of images uh, was envisioning a persevering church as a craving community. And now we're going to move on to verses 4 through 8, where he gives us a, se a second set of images moving from babies to stones. We're shifting quite a bit here. Now, these aren't just any stones that we're talking about. Strangely, Peter calls them living stones in relation to the living stone, capital L, capital S, who is also called the cornerstone in this passage. 
And it sure looks like they are being carefully, carefully, expertly assembled into a temple. The church that perseveres is a crafted community. It's one that's being crafted into a living temple of God. The first thing that we need to see about this temple is that there are apparently two different building projects going on in this passage. On the one hand, God is in the process of building a temple, and he's using these living stones. He's using us to do it. But then in verse 7, Peter quotes a psalm. He quotes Psalm 118, and he points us to this other group of builders who are sort of in the picture somewhere. We don't know what it is quite that they're building, but it is evidently not God's project. In fact, for their purposes, they outright reject this stone that God has chosen as the most important stone in his entire temple. Now, it's not hard to figure out what's meant here. Even before the New Testament was written, these Old Testament quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, they were already being interpreted as being about the Messiah. That's how Jews thought about these stone passages in the Old Testament. This cornerstone was an image of the Messiah himself. But rather than accepting him as the foundation of the kingdom of God, these builders in Psalm 118 would reject him. They'd they'd toss him out, they'd pass him by, because he didn't fit their image of how the kingdom of God should look, what the Messiah should do. And when you read the Gospels, that is exactly what you see. Jesus being rejected by the religious authorities because he didn't fit their idea of a Messiah. Peter's point in using this imagery is to remind us that Christ-centered community, as fragile and as attacked as it might feel, is built by God. It's not built by people. This crafted community is one where God is the architect, no human being. And because it's a temple, it means that God dwells there. He's in its midst. And because God built it, it will not fall. The second thing that we need to notice about this temple is that for it to stand, its stones actually need to be assembled. Bringing stones from the quarry and just dropping them on the ground and leaving them all over the place, that's not a temple. Building most of a wall, but then leaving a few out here and there, not quite finishing it up on top, that's not a temple. Slapping bricks up haphazardly and not caring how they look, that's not a temple either. Peter is giving us a picture of a community that is designed for interdependence instead of isolation. He knows how different external pressures are making life so difficult for the church. And he also knows how there are internal pressures that are threatening to tear it apart, the malice, the deceit, the envy, and so forth. And Peter is saying, friends, because you are God's building project, not humanity's, you need each other because you're designed that way. You're designed to be with and to need each other. Every one of you living stones has a unique place in this architecture. And together, you are working together with a beautiful purpose, a purpose that I designed. So a persevering church, a crafted community, is one that realizes that its purpose cannot be achieved apart from the community of other believers. The final thing, third thing to note about this temple, so we're still in the second portion here, but the third thing to note about this temple is that it's crafted on the cornerstone and on nothing else. That means that this cornerstone is both 
a firm foundation for the temple, and it's a special stone that actually defines the shape of the temple. It's the finely measured stone at the base of the temple that really bears the first weight of the rest of the structure, and it also sets up the lines that define its walls. It's been crafted exactly to to go out that way and forward that way and up that way. It defines the plumb lines of the temple. The church perseveres in its faith and in its mission only to the extent that we remain founded on and shaped by Jesus. Our individual lives and our community both take on the shape of Jesus' life. Now, that obviously encompasses a lot. Jesus' life had a lot of shape to it. But there's probably a particular thing that Peter has in mind right here, and that is rejection. Rejection by the world. Just like Jesus, the cornerstone, was rejected by disbelieving and disobedient humanity, Jesus' followers should expect the very same thing. In fact, that is precisely why Peter's readers and we today face rejection from many people and culture. It's because our lives are being shaped like his. Now, as I say that, I feel like I need to give a word of caution as well. It could be easy for us to sort of take on the mindset of being a persecuted minority when you hear that. And to be clear, Peter's original audience here, they were absolutely a persecuted minority. Millions of Christians around the world today are a persecuted minority. But while the culture that we live in here in 21st century North America does conflict with our faith in many, many ways, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily a persecuted minority. Peter's words need to be read alongside Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That can and does happen today. It's happened to some of you. But it's also possible to bring down trials on our own heads through unchristlike behavior. And that's why Peter says to eliminate these things like malice and deceit and so forth. Get those out of our lives so that we're craving God in the right way. We're drinking pure spiritual milk and we're not bringing other things into our lives that would bring down the reprobation of the world around us. So if there's a a memorable application phrase here, it's probably this. Stay built. Before we said stay hungry, now we could say stay built. The reality is that we are Our fundamental identity as a people of God is that we are a temple crafted by God. We are his handiwork. But just like being a craving community, we need to be intentional about living into that identity. We have to fight for interdependence with one another rather than trying to live independently or live in isolation. Just do it on our own. Keep staying founded on and shaped by Jesus and no one else. So think about that. How is it that you need to stay built in days ahead? All right, the last group of images that Peter gives us is in verses 9 through 10. And this this section is just unbelievably rich with Old Testament connections. We can't even chase all of them down. But he says that, that Christ followers are a chosen race, which is a reference to Isaiah 43, where Israel is called God's chosen race. 
He says that they're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Those are three terms pulled right out of Exodus 19 describing how Israel was set apart from the world for God's special purposes. And then he says that once they weren't a people, but now they're God's people. Once they had not received mercy, but now they have received mercy. That is a direct quote from Hosea chapter 2, where God promises to take unfaithful Israel back to himself and rescue them from exile. Now, each of those images, as Peter uses them, is just incredible and really deserves a whole sermon on its own. But for now, we just need to see two things as we sort of fly over them. First, what they're communicating is that we belong to God and we are set apart for him. We belong to God as his set-apart people. And second, Peter gives us a reason why we have these titles. There's a purpose connected to all of these titles in verse 9. He says, you are, this is true about you, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Followers of Jesus have been born again as God's set-apart children in order to tell how awesome he is. Our son Owen turned nine this past Friday, and we have a birthday tradition in our house where the night before uh, the birthday happens, we hang up, well, Amy and I hang up these hand-drawn birthday posters all around the house. We make them new for every birthday. They're intended to be creative. Some of them are. We have actually figured out that this is my single contribution to birthday prep, I think, because... You got the rest of it, babe. Good job. <clears throat> um, yeah, so, so this, we did it this, this past week, this past Thursday night. I won't tell you how late we stayed up. Um, and I, I brought a couple of examples just to show you. We try to get creative. Um, so this, it's, it's a poem. Sometimes we get poetic. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Owen is nine. That is all. <laughs> and then since, since he's a Valentine's baby, Friday was Valentine's Day, uh, we have this one here, Owen's birthday. It's got the heart with the arrow going through it here. That special day every year when we shoot arrows through people's hearts. <laughs> we, we're kind of weird at our house. I apologize. But. Now, I, I realize that these are not high quality, but that's not really the point. They are Owen quality. He loves them, and he loves telling his friends about them because his dad made them. So when friends come over for the birthday party, one of the first things he does is, look at this, look what my dad wrote. On a far, far greater scale, that's what God's children do. Peter says, we declare his praises or his excellencies, his virtues, his mighty acts as God's sons and daughters. That's what we do. We tell others about our father, who he is, what he's done, why we think he's so awesome. A persevering church, according to Peter, is a crying out church. It's one that declares God's goodness in both word and action. And in the context of 1 Peter, there are some particular things that we are supposed to be crying out about. First one is this. Remember the historical context to this book that we're reading. It included suffering and trials of various kinds. Christians throughout Asia Minor were being harassed, they were being ostracized for their faith. It probably had not yet reached the level of like official government-sponsored persecution like under the Emperor Nero, 
but they were still suffering for their countercultural stances that they took. Worshiping Jesus as the only true God, remaining separate from pagan cultural practices, all that kind of stuff. Well, Peter really focuses on who God is and on what God has done and what's true of Christ's followers as a result. And those are the much bigger realities that are meant to encourage them in the midst of the trials that they're facing. But that doesn't mean that people who are undergoing trial and suffering should just grin and bear it. That's not Peter's message. In trial and in suffering, we ought to cry out to God for his help, for his strength in the midst of suffering, for his presence to be with us in that suffering, even for him to cause that suffering to go away. That's right and good for us to pray for. God wants his children to come to him, to engage with him, not to stay silent or pretend that they can just get through their trials on their own. They can just, you know, buckle up and do it. In fact, a church that doesn't wrestle with God about suffering, the suffering that it undergoes, might not be a church that would persevere to the end. If we don't come to him in our need, if we don't ask him confidently and persistently to provide for us, especially in what we're suffering, we won't persevere in our faith or in our mission. Part of being a crying out community is actually crying out to God in our need. But it has to move beyond us, too. Our crying out doesn't stay just with us. We also cry out to God for others on behalf of others who don't yet know him. I was so proud of Seth Stevens right over here, who in our group prayer time that we had just a little bit ago, his prayer request was for a friend of his who doesn't yet know Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. Even though Peter's audience is Christians who are, undergoing, who are going through trial in many ways, he never loses sight of the larger mission that they are to be on. Remember, he says that we are God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, so that we can declare his praises. That's the whole purpose. And that comes right on the heels of this cornerstone passage, this stone that disobedient and disbelieving humanity trips over into God's judgment. That is true. So much of humanity turns away from the Lord. That's where we were before we turned to the Lord. That's not what God wants. What God desires is that unbelieving humanity would turn to Jesus in faith. And so he gives his children this special identity so that we can tell the world. The church that perseveres in faith and in mission is one that takes that call seriously. We cry out to God on behalf of our family, our friends, our neighbors who don't yet know Jesus so that they would put their faith in him. But we also cry out to them for God. We share our faith. We demonstrate his goodness in our way of life. That is a crying out community right there. Now, the third thing to see in all of this is uh, the quote from Isaiah, that, uh, I'm sorry, from Hosea, that fills it out further. It's good for us to be able to take people into Scripture, for them to hear God's words and to encounter Jesus there. And we should be asking God for some of those opportunities. That's part of being a crying out community. But just as important is being able to tell people our own story of how God's mercy changed me, changed us. Once, we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once, I had not received mercy, 
but now I have received mercy. Let me tell you about what that mercy looked like in my life. Friends, your personal narrative of God's goodness and love and mercy in your life, you could call it your testimony if you want to, is the most significant way that you could share your faith. That's a big statement because we know that God's word is powerful, right? Your personal story is the most significant way that you can share your faith. By all means, tie it to Scripture, but your life is where God's mercy and love from Scripture showed up and did something. It's being made real in you today. So you get to declare the praises of him who called you out of your particular darkness into his wonderful light for you. So to keep our, our pattern of application going here, what, what might be our application for crying out? So the craving community is one that stays hungry. The crafted community is one that stays built. I think that we could say that the crying out community is one that stays vocal. The church that perseveres is the one that is intentional about voicing these things. We're intentional about crying out to our Father in the midst of suffering. We're intentional about telling others how good he is and then praying for them so that they would know how good he is. We're intentional about telling the story of his mercy and his love in our own lives. A church that is intentional about those things is one that is in it for the long haul, friends. Is there a particular way that you need to stay vocal? Friends, our Father in heaven loves us. He loves us. He is crazy about us. He is a God who looks with so much pleasure on his family, his family that is several billions strong, and he picks each one of us out from that crowd and he says, oh, I'm especially fond of that one. With a father like that, why wouldn't we stay vocal with him and about him? The stakes are so high, aren't they, guys? If a church doesn't persevere in its faith and in its mission, the consequences are huge. What does it take to be a church that perseveres? What kind of community do we need to foster? A craving community, so let's stay hungry. A crafted community, so let's, let's stay built. And a crying out community, so let's stay vocal together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what you have done for us on the cross is so huge, so monumental and universe-altering that it's nothing short of giving us a new birth. We thank you for doing that. We praise you for doing that. And we ask that you would help us to live into that new birth, not just as individuals, but as a community of brothers and sisters built together as living stones in the temple of God. We pray this in your name. Amen.